Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, August 22nd, and we're discussing U.S. shale exploration and production companies. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall via Skype. How's it going, Jason? I'm very, very good. I, I, I just want to go ahead and get a go dogs out there early because we're not going to record before the, the season really kicks off. And uh, But we're going to, uh, our, our listeners who don't really enjoy when Nick and I go off on our college football tangents. We're going to save that for the end of the show, but we are going to talk about football a little bit. Yeah, I'll hit you with a little roll tide there. Uh, playing Duke this week, uh, <laughs> next weekend, I'll be heading down there. We'll chat about that a little bit at the end. But first, uh, today we're going to talk about shale. We're going to talk about exploration and production companies. I think shale, it's a really interesting case study when it comes to uh, something where you had this huge technological revolution that was the, the shale revolution. We got access to oil and gas that we hadn't been able to access ever before, which led to a massive increase in production. Uh, but there really hasn't been uh, much dropping down to the bottom lines of these companies, and we'll kind of explore that. But first off, before we dive too much into this, just high level folks that don't know what, when we say exploration and production or EMP companies in the oil space, what does that mean? I'm going to throw another piece of jargon in there to complicate it even more. This is the upstream segment. Um, so you hear all these words and all these d- different descriptions. And it, the best way to describe it is that the, the oil and gas industry, the value chain, as they call it, is kind of divided up into three major sections. You have the ENPs, uh, the guys we're going to talk about now, which are the upstream companies. They're the ones that go out there and they look for oil and gas reserves. They drill wells to, to tap it. And they make money by selling oil and gas. Uh, they they work with uh, the midstream companies, which are the ones that operate the pipelines, uh, the the shipping companies that 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 move the 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 resources from place to place, connect the wells to the markets that then buy it. Um, and then that's where it goes to the downstream segment, which is like your refiners, uh, your marketers, like your gas stations that, that's, that, that sell you the refined products. Uh, so that's kind of, kind of how it's divided up. So when we say E&P, uh, or if you hear the word upstream, we're talking about the companies that are the ones that truly make their money drilling and selling oil and natural gas. Exactly. These are the folks who are pulling this oil and gas literally out of the ground um, and sending it to market. Uh, we talk about shale. You know, as I mentioned, shale was it was a huge revolution in how ENP companies extract uh, oil and gas, and it opened up access to supplies that weren't there before. Uh, you know, shale oil is referred to as unconventional uh, oil plays or unconventional extraction. How uh, does shale oil and natural gas extraction differ from what they call conventional oil plays? Well, once upon a time, and basically the the you know entire first century or so of, of the oil and gas industry. Um, essentially, these companies would go out and they'd drill a vertical well straight into the ground and hope they hit a giant pool of uh, oil or natural gas and they'd pump it out of the ground. Um, those are the, the, and that's what's considered the conventional sources. So you think about uh, the Texas oil boom and, and the Pennsylvania really uh, oil boom, you know, uh, the you know late 1800s, early 1900s, that's conventional oil. You think about the Middle East, you think about Saudi Arabia's, um, their giant, what is it, I think the Gawar uh, oil field. These, these, are, these are conventional resources. Um, uh, you know, a few years ago, you go back about a decade or so ago, and there was this concept called peak oil, where really highly developed uh, uh, markets with assets 
like the U.S., where we've been producing them for a century, we're running out of that conventional resource. It was simply, we were just going to have to start expo- uh, importing essentially all of our oil um, to, to you know, send to our refineries and, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's when you know, our refinery infrastructure really began getting shifted over to handle the Middle Eastern sour crude versus the, the light sweet crude that most of the, the, the U.S. place produce. So anyway, the, 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 the thing that happened was uh, that we've, we've known for 50, 60 years that there's other oil and gas in geological shale formations that we, we, we just simply didn't have the technology or the capability to be able to, to access in anything like a cost-effective way. Uh, these are also called tight formations, and essentially because that means that they're trapped very tightly in, in these, uh, these rock formations. So, uh, you know, again, about a decade or so ago, there was a lot of effort put into developing technologies to get them out of the ground. And you've, everybody's heard the word fracking. Right, and that's hydraulic fracturing, where you use a really high horsepower, super powerful pump to inject water at very high pressures, uh, and then use a propent like sand uh, and some some other uh, other uh, chemicals to literally prop the 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 fractured rock open to hold it open so that then you can get the oil and the gas out of it. Uh, that's been combined with horizontal drilling. So it's not just drilling a vertical drill straight in, uh, well straight into the ground. These, these, uh, these producers are also drilling a mile or two, you know, north, south, east, and west. They're taking a 90-degree turn to be able to tap into a lot greater area of resources um, using that technology. And essentially, you know, it's, it's, I guess the best way to describe it is it's pretty much saved uh, the North American oil and gas industry by being able to to tap those uh, to tap those resources. Right, exactly. So by this combination of uh, horizontal drilling as well as hydraulic fracturing has opened up access to oil and gas we knew was there for a large number of years, but we just weren't able to get out of the ground, and that's led to a huge increase uh, in oil production in the U.S. So in 2009, uh, the U.S. averaged about uh, 5.4 million barrels per day of crude oil in production. Uh, that was right when shale was probably beginning to ramp up. If you look at 2018, last year, uh, the U.S. became the world's top oil producer, producing 15.3 million barrels per day of oil. So you have a triple in oil production in the U.S. just over a period of, of just under 10 years, which in a mature industry like oil and gas is absolutely massive. Unheard yes, of. Yes, unheard of. Between 2008 and today, 73% of the U.S. Uh, of the increase in oil production came out of the U.S. In 2018, 98% of global production additions came out of the U.S. So this has really been a significant uh, disruptor when it comes to increasing the the addressable supplies of oil and natural gas uh, that we can produce. And it really produced, I mean, massive boom towns across the USA. You hear about these these cities in in uh, in Texas or in North Dakota where you know it's this small town and you can't get an apartment for under you know fifteen hundred bucks a month and you know Walmart's having to pay people these obscenely high prices just to keep the doors open. You have this massive uh, increase in production, massive increase in employment in the sector. However, when it comes to the profits and the bottom line, uh, that maybe hasn't materialized as much in the EMP space. Can you talk a little bit about why that happened and the market dynamics that contributed to that trend? Yeah, so you you go back to that, you know, the 2009-2010 period, you look at you look at oil prices coming out of the the great recession and um, you know, we 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 quickly saw, you know, oil prices shoot up and consistently stay above 
you know, $100 a barrel for an extended period of time. And this is the best thing that could have happened for the development of the technologies to access shale because those technologies you go back a decade ago when when the 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 first we saw the first ramp up of of you know permit requests for for play like in the like in pennsylvania you know to that was really like the first place that that we saw fracking really take off and a lot of that was natural gas but the, there was this you know when when oil's you know 100 120 dollars a barrel that pays for a <laughs> pays for a lot more uh enp expense than fifty dollar oil does. So, you know, you go from like, you know, twenty eleven to mid twenty fourteen and oil consistently stayed above a hundred dollars a barrel. And the drill baby drill mentality was huge. And there was so many of these independents that just went out and spent everything that they could, you know, got every dollar, uh took on every dollar of debt that they could get their hands on, issued stock, and there was just this real rush to to develop, you know, these these plays. And, and back then you're looking at, you know, $90 a barrel cash costs to get oil out of the ground. Um, you know, you think about oil selling today for around 60, less than 55 or so, you know, that's, that's, you know, you could afford to do it back then. The problem is we saw the, you know, the, the crash happened, you know, from yeah, mid 2014, you know, you ride, you write things down to the early 2016, you know, your oil prices fell you know, like 75%, um, you know, on a global basis. And essentially what happened was the U.S. producers pumped and pumped and pumped and, you know, kept driving their production up. And you had a bit of a, a, a stare down with OPEC. And, um, you know, <laughs> OPEC eventually blinked and, and backed down and ceded a little bit of market share to establish some balance back to the market. But by that time, you know, a lot of these guys got wiped out um, the, just because there was no money. The lender stopped lending. Um, but you, 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 you fast forward to that time and coming out of it, a lot of innovation had happened. You know, the costs for production had fallen. The technology had gotten better. And I think this is the biggest one. This is one of the most important things that, that, that kind of demonstrates how shale um, has, has, has affected the oil market and, and, and really just kind of um, disrupted it is the, the, the turn time on these wells. You know, I mean, back, you know, you go back, you know, a decade ago and you're looking at, you know, a, a couple of few months to develop one and, and, and bring them online. And now, I mean, the, these, these guys have gotten so good that they can start a well on a Monday and in some cases by Saturday or Sunday, they're, they're pumping oil. I mean, it's just incredibly fast. And generally it's, you know, it's a few weeks is, is super fast turnaround, but that's, that it's, it's made the U S kind of the swing producer because these guys have the ability to scale up uh, production so quickly uh, by developing these resources and bringing them online. Um, the other side of that is that it does allow them to generate cash flows from the, from those development costs relatively quickly. But we'll we'll talk about how that that short term benefit really has it shown on the bottom line. Yeah, sure. So you know, as you said, in the, these first few years as shale was growing up, you had you always had a massive amount of, of cash burn out of these companies, but you had the expectation over time that as efficiencies increase and those sorts of things, uh, you know, maybe maybe the, the the switch would flip. However, as you mentioned, shale shale wells 
can really start production very, very quickly. However, they also start declining the amount of oil they produce much more quickly. So, as much as three quarters of a shale well's production can come in that first year or two. So, you have all this capital rush into the market as there's new supply, uh, kind of a boomtown mentality that really boosts production, pushes down oil prices. And, uh, but again, folks, because they're chasing growth, continue to pump some cash into production and they continue producing more and more oil uh, despite. Cash burn. Uh, there's been some criticism. I know uh, Tyler Crow, one of our one of our uh, colleagues at the Fool, likes to criticize shale uh, management teams. Uh, do you think there there was some conflict of interest between management and the kind of the bottom line motivation that the shareholders would be looking for in this space? Yeah, I think so. Historically, it's been it's been you know these independents really have you know. <laughs> have not necessarily made for great investments. I mean, it's it's funny. Like you go back to, to you know the Great Recession, you know through now, and and a lot of the names are, are, are. I mean, there's still some familiar names out there, but there've also been a lot of changes in who the top producers were because they ran out of money, and you know <laughs> they got put out of business. So, um, it, just as a sector, it's it's not. It's I mean, I just I can't. I can't stress this enough that I, th- I think this is a, it's not really a place that I think most individual investors should really look um, as, as somewhere they want to invest for, for long term. Right. I just, I, I don't think there's really a lot of value to be, to be, to be had here. Um, so you, you, you look at, and you know, there's something you got, you dug up some really interesting information for us. You look at, you know, the, the cash flows, um, the capital discipline for these guys, we go back to 2014, you know, this is, this was kind of the peak you know, I think these guys spent as a sector, and there's a there's a group of about ten or so independents that that kind of are a good benchmark. And um, you know, you go back to 2014. I think they spent six and a half, almost seven billion dollars in capex and generated. And again, this is with oil was you know spent you know the first half of that year well over a hundred dollars a barrel. Um, so they 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 generated about you know six point two billion dollars in cash from operations. So they spent. You know, five or six hundred million dollars more on capex than they actually generated, and that's with oil. You know, well over a hundred dollars a barrel for most of the year. You know, the the spread was even wider in 2015 when you know oil prices were really plummeting. They still spent about four billion on capex, and a lot of that they, they kind of had to. Um, but you know, oil prices fell, and you know, operating cash flows fell to you know less than three billion. So. You know, from 2014, over six billion dollars in operating cash um, on average, um, to less than three in one year because oil prices crashed. Uh, they simply did not have the ability to bring their capital spending down anywhere quickly enough to respond to that market. You fast forward to last year. Last year is the first year in a long time that these guys actually generated more cash than they spent. On uh, on capital expenditures, and here we here we are in 2019 again, and we're still collecting data from the first or from the second quarter, but it looks like it's flipped again, and we're back into one of those you know negative cash flows years for uh, for the independent EMPs. Yeah, it's it's just difficult with those decline rates and those sorts of things. You constantly have to be pumping more cash yeah. into the into these wells to show growth and to continue to continue growing your business. There's not really a point where you achieve operating leverage, where all of a sudden you know your investments are done and you're just can can, can continually increase cash flows without having to pump in more cash. And that kind of makes the economics of these tough. Any extra thoughts there, Jason? Yeah, let me uh, let me just add some extra context on that that I think is really important that we 
you know, we've kind of hinted around, but we haven't been like super specific on is something called decline curves. And the decline curve is essentially what, where your well starts, you drill a well today, and here's, you know, your first year production is at this point. And what happens to that production as, uh, as time goes. And, you, you know, you said that, you know, about, you know, some of these shale wells you're seeing, you know, as much as three quarters of its total lifetime production happened in the first couple of years. Um, and then, but the thing is that after that, after that, it still declines, you know, five to 10% a year, it declines very, very quickly as a comparison you think about these these more mature the the legacy conventional plays that are still out there i mean their decline curves are like you know 1 2 sometimes maybe 3% a year they're much much lower so they start at this at this at this strong level it's not as high as you might get initially from the from the shale but it starts at a strong level and then it stays very consistent without the necessary capital investments to to try to to try to prop up that 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 output so you can get certain a certain amount of operating leverage from those traditional plays we just don't have any in north america really and of of any significant value so the, so what these shale producers have to do is they've got to go find the next well to drill so they're starting over you know to 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 just again not not even just grow their volume which most of them are trying to do but simply to maintain the similar level of production, they have to continue to drill at a much higher rate than anyone with uh, conventional assets. Yeah. One other thing uh, to note here as well is that if you look at some of the management teams in this space, uh, you know, a lot of them or some of them have their compensation tied to increasing production rather than cash flow metrics and those sorts of things. And when that happens, there can be an incentive to, to show increases of production despite uh, what that may do from a cash flow point of view. So you, you really need to be mindful of how executives are being, being compensated in this, co- you know, in these companies, and to the extent it aligns with individual shareholder interests. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw Antero Resources under the bus just a little bit here. Um, I want to be clear. I'm not there, no accusations of any, you know, intentional you know, bad behavior or unethical behavior, but just a description of a typical. Uh, executive compensation plan. Uh, so, uh, 2018, uh, Interior Resources uh, management compensation was divided up into four four different things: uh, is uh, uh, debt adjusted net production growth per share, net debt to adjusted EBITDA X, which is uh, oil and gas specific uh, uh, EBITDA earnings before interest tax. Depreciation, amortization—it's a metric that factors in some other, like uh, basically, <laughs> pretty much all of their exploration and production costs, I guess. Uh, free cash flow and safety and environmental. So, Antero Resources generated three hundred and three million dollars in negative free cash flow in uh, in twenty eighteen. Three hundred three million dollars in negative free cash flow in twenty. Uh, uh, 2018. And that was, you know, the target performance was 20 million in positive free cash flow. And they, there was an accelerator for up to as much as 215 million in positive free cash flow. The minimum threshold was $170 million in negative free cash flow. So they, they generated like 70% more free cash burn than the bottom end of their that free cash flow bucket for their for their uh, uh, incentive program, 
they still managed to get 73% on their, uh, on their, on their bonus after destroying a massive, I shouldn't say destroy, but consuming a massive amount of the company's capital because they were, they, 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 you start debt adjusting and you have all these adjusted metrics for things like EBITDA and you can factor out very real, very expensive production costs to hit your production metrics, mm -hmm. right? And to hit your adjusted uh, EBITDA metrics. And then you have the safety and environmental, uh, which, I mean, that's, that's important. That's very important, right? I mean, but, but, but uh, do, you, do, you, do, you bonus, do you bonus your executives for you know, doing the right thing when it comes to safety and environment? I, you know, I, so again, I, I don't, I think the, the, the takeaway is that it's really important that you need to look at, at the, uh, how, how management is incentivized, what are their bonuses, because this is a clear case of a management team that their, their incentive was, you know, to heck with the cash burn. We can burn through the cash. And if we hit our production growth, we're going to more than make up for it. So, you know, I, I again, I, I'm not saying they did anything unethical. They acted based on how they were going to be compensated. So, you really need to understand that because this is clearly the kind of incentive that's not very shareholder shareholder aligned in terms of creating long term value. Right, and this is this is true in, in the shale industry. This is true in really any business you you own shares Absolutely. in. It's an important part of your kind of investing thesis and your research to look and, and see that management's uh, compensation plan aligns with you know the metrics that are important for the business and important to driving shareholder value. If you don't know where to find that, that's for, form fourteen uh, A. That's the proxy statement. You can scroll down to uh, you know the part uh, the part of the uh, the document that has executive compensation, and it'll lay, lay those sorts of things out. Okay, Jason, we, we've kind of painted a a, a negative, you know, a dire picture for how this industry a, has performed over time, partially due to the amount of cash they've had to pump in. They've had to, you know, it's been a really disruptive period in the industry as lots of supply has been added to a market that is a commodity market. It, it's a difficult market to navigate even outside of that. Uh, how optimistic are you that this industry can kind of get its feet under it under itself and be more profitable going forward? We have seen some consolidation. You know, recently the Occidental Anadarko deal is an example of that. How optimistic are you that consolidation or otherwise, this industry can mature and start to drive profitable cash flows? Uh, I'll believe it two years after I see it start happening and it continues to happen. I just I don't I don't have faith um, in, in, in as a sector, this being something that ever really gets you know, fundamentally you know, resolved because we see it happen, you know, again and again. Every few years, we go through these little boom bust cycles, uh, and we kind of fall into that. You know, investors fall into that 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 this time it's different perspective, right? We thought, hey, you know, they come out of 2016. You know, these guys really they started cutting costs. We started seeing some fiscal discipline, and you know, it's, it's, you know, we get a good year, and then you know the cash burn kicks up again. I just so I have I don't I don't have much faith that that. We're going to see a change, and here's a big, a big part of the reason why. You know, I don't, I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that these guys are all a bunch of crooks. Um, I, it's, it's a really, really hard business, and shale is a very capital intensive. It takes a lot of capital up front to get production, and then you have to continue rotating that capital back through the business to just maintain production. And shale is not the low-cost source of oil. The bottom line is that the conventional resources out there and, and OPEC and uh, particularly Saudi Arabia uh, still control a massive amount 
of uh, the global oil market. And, you know, a lot of their plays are literally single dollar per barrel cash production costs. And that gives them a massive advantage that, that, that shale simply will never reach. You know, at the same time, you know, uh, you've got renewables on the other on the other end of the energy uh, uh, industry that are that are continuing to develop cost advantages too, and and to you know drive costs down, and you know, and you have technologies like energy storage that are starting to make renewables like wind and solar more competitive in terms of uh, you know, providing the baseload energy access that at some point we could see even challenge natural gas uh, for, for energy production costs for, for utility companies. So, I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of weight from a lot of different, different uh, angles that are pushing on this, this entire independent EMP group to, to consistently make money. It's just a really, really hard place to live. Yeah, it's a, for me, it's kind of, kind of a too hard pile. Uh, you know, as you say, it, it's a case yeah. where... Exactly. We've seen this massive increase in production, which you know, for the Saudi Arabias of the world, has brought down the effective top end price they can charge because this these swing productions will come online and do that sort of thing. But the folks actually pulling it out of the ground, uh, you know, the economics of the business and the, the way you have to allocate your capital to make things work is just difficult to scale. So I think this is one of those innovations that has brought prices down for just about everybody, which is great yeah. for the average folks who use oil or natural gas or any of those sorts of things. Um, but I'm not sure if it's if it's something that you'd want to invest in. However, what a question I do want to ask you about, Jason, is you have all this new oil and natural gas uh, now online. You talk about you know we have a hundred years of natural gas supply in the U.S. Are there any yep. industries or companies adjacent uh, to shale or adjacent to oil and natural gas that you think will have really benefited from this uh, kind of revolution and technological development that you do think are attractive investments? I think so. I think I think so. There, there, there are a few. Um, and after we do this, I've got a really good, for instance, I can I can provide just to demonstrate, you know, kind of when it comes to these EMPs, how people should think about them. But I, so you think about all the oil and gas, um, and really it's gas as much as anything that's creating massive opportunity. You know, we're looking at you know a couple hundred billion dollars that are being invested uh, in you know that that kind of the Gulf, you know. U.S. Gulf Coast area in the petrochemical industry, um, the, based on this really low-cost resource um, that's that's going to create a lot of jobs. It already has. It's going to boost the U.S. economy because a lot of these products are going to get exported. Uh, but one of my one of my favorites is a Tellurian. Uh, ticker is T E L L Tellurian. Uh, it's a really interesting liquefied natural gas export play. Uh, Tellurian's planning to build an LNG export facility, a natural gas liquefaction and export facility, and two pipelines uh, to connect it to uh, major shale resources. Uh, the company says that this, the, the, the business is going to be able to generate like $7 a share in cash flows um, when it's up and running. And I, I don't have it right in front of me, but I think, I think it trades for I don't know, somewhere around nine dollars a share today. So you know that's barely you know one point two times uh, you know potential cash flows for the company. Uh, so you might be wondering, well, why is it trading for you know not much more than a one times cash uh, future cash flows multiple? Uh, because this company doesn't have a business today. It's really, it's really a really great business plan, and a couple of approvals uh, and and some land. Um, Company's going to need need about twenty seven billion bucks uh, to build all those facilities. 
Um, it, it has less than 900 million in commitments, right? Well, it has probably about a billion dollars in commitments now. Uh, in other words, basically everything could go wrong. Um, it's, it's a startup. Um, so it's fraught with all kinds of risk, um, because it has to access capital that it doesn't, that it doesn't have lined up yet. Um, and there's a ton of things that are completely unpredictable and uncontrollable that could happen, you know, over the next few years to prevent it from, from accomplishing it. So there's, you know, there's a high level of risk there. Uh, but I'm, 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 I'm an investor and I'm betting on, uh, Sharif Suki. Uh, for those of you that, that don't recognize the name, uh, this is the gentleman that founded Chenier Energy, which is the biggest, you know, LNG exporter in the, in the U S today. And it's still growing. It's been a massively rewarding investor for people, investment for people who, bought you know a number of years ago and just kind of rode it out through the same cycle of basically starting with an idea and then spending billions and billions of dollars uh, to build out this infrastructure so if you if you've got a you know a little a little bucket in your portfolio of you know high risk high reward kind of a, it's almost a binary play um, I, this is this is one that I would I would suggest um, investors take a hard look at uh, but it's going to be 2023 before operations even commence. And again, that's assuming everything happens on on the on the on the timeline that the company has laid out. So I love the idea. I, I love the past execution of the of the company of the management that's that's in charge. Uh, you just have to be willing to ride out a lot of uncertainty before it gets there. Sure. Yeah, I, I've actually taken a look at Tellurian as well. Having a management team that's done this before, for, especially for a, yep. for a project as big and as long-term as this is, it's really reassuring to have someone uh, with that kind of experience that says, hey, I've done it. They've done it. Absolutely. So you, another company that, that I think is really well positioned, that's got a great business today, has a lot of growth potential, and it's, 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 it's certainly more diversified. It's Chart Industries. Uh, chart Industries uh, manufactures cryogenic gas uh, production, storage, and transportation uh, equipment. So you think about uh, liquid nitrogen, liquid oxygen, liquefied natural gas. Uh, this is, so this is a company that makes and services that kind of equipment. There's a massive demand for, for its products all over the world. Uh, and from the energy industry, which is its biggest, its biggest uh, potential market, and then you also have the packaged, uh, uh, the, the uh, industrial gas industry. Uh, it does business with uh, um, healthcare, so think about biotechnology. Um, so anyway, the, the, the company uh, trades for today less than eight times uh, what management is calling for for the high end of next year's earnings um, that, are, that are based on these big LNG products. So like you think about Tellurian building this, you know, big, you know, multi-billion dollar facility. There's like a dozen of those facilities that are in the pipeline right now um, in, in North America to be built over the next few years. And Chart is a, just a real leader in, in the, what they make. And they're really positioned to get a massive, a massive amount of that business. So the other thing too, is you think about, you know, I think $8 a share, almost $9 a share is what management's calling for to potentially earn in 2020. The CEO uh, made it clear that, that they do not see 2020 as being the peak of the of the demand curve either. So, I mean, this could be a five to 10 year uh, period of just really, really high profits uh, and big cash flows for charts. I really like this business a lot. Now, if you want something that's a little more predictable, uh, but you still want uh, to be exposed to the, the potential here, I think Phillips 66 is, is, is worth a look. Uh, it has a great balance sheet. 
Um, it, it structures its, its long-term agreements for its midstream business. So you think about the gathering of natural gas, natural gas liquids and the pipelines to move those products to market. Um, it structures its business to, 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 to support a great dividend uh, yields about three and a half percent right now. Uh, and here's the thing I really like too, is that it's, it's a major refiner and its refineries are really advanced. It has the ability to refine just about anything. Uh, and that means that it benefits. So while the producers are getting their tails kicked with when oil prices fall, uh, Phillips 66 benefits because um, it, it, it makes, you know, it buys oil. So when it, oil's prices are down, it's good for it, uh, it in terms of, of that. And so it also benefits from the, the spread between West, West Texas crude and Brent, which is more of the kind of the global index for oil. Uh, and, and Brent is a, it has a bigger role in how gasoline and jet fuel and those sorts of things are priced. So it's able to buy the cheaper input and benefit from the from the price spread and makes it makes it really really profitable uh, and I, I think for the I don't know it's been since I don't know t end of 2016 that uh, West Texas crude has consistently been you know a good bit cheaper than Brent so that's good for for refiners like Phillips Phillips 66 trades for about eight, eight and a half times trailing earnings again about a three and a half percent yield they've increased the dividend every year since uh, since it went public um, it's I'm I'm a big fan, and you get the you get the right kind of exposure to shale with somebody like Phillips Phillips 66. Yeah, totally agree. All those solid picks. I think the big thing for me is you don't want to be looking for, at the, for the folks who are taking this you know the hydrocarbons out of the ground. You want to be fo looking at folks that take it to market or do some kind of value add uh, value add business, whether it's refining, whether that's turning that natural gas into liquefied natural gas or export, so it can go to market. Much more attractive than the folks in that core commodity. Uh, business pulling it out of the ground. Yeah, I, I want to use you know, EOG Resources as a as a as an excellent example of of exactly how this works. So you you, you go back to to you know EOG Resources has been pretty consistently cash flow positive. They 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 have debt, but they have a ton of cash. They, they manage their balance sheet really really well. This is a good management team that generally does a really solid job. Uh, so let's go back to you know, early 2016 when you know crude kind of bottomed out. Um, you know, in that, that high 20s, low 30s kind of area. If you had managed to buy EOG resources at the very bottom for oil, at the very, very bottom for oil, if you were just lucky enough to get that timing and you bought it right then, uh, and you held through, you know, t roughly today, I think the stock is up like 17%. You know, the S&P 500 gained like 70% over that same period. And this is one of the better, this is one of the better independent EMPs to own. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that is because you would have also, you know, ridden, wrote it up to like 80 or 90% in gains at one point and then wrote it back down more recently. So I think uh, if, if you're interested in, in these EMPs as investments, I think you have to almost take, you know, almost kind of the opposite of the usual foolish approach is to find great businesses to own for the long term and look for opportunities to buy when there's an you know the the, the market is obviously in some sort of a downturn so you, you go back to that early 2016 you know oil prices had fallen 70 plus percent um you know that's that's a clear sign that the, the market is 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 down you know if you had a bought at that period and held you know a little over six months and held to the end of you know, to the end of, of 2016, 
you know, you would have seen a 55% gain, um, you know, which is great. So I think you almost, if you even want to consider these guys, you buy them at what is a clear down point, And then you just have to be willing to hold until you see a recovery and you see a nice profit that you're prepared to take and you take that profit and you move on. I mean, I think that's the only way to really have any way of consistently making money uh, with these. And even with that, you have to take the risk that the downturn is going to last longer than, than you're willing to hold on to the company. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the risk. Yeah. E- easier said than done requires timing, requires <laughs> wherewithal, so. requires the bravery yeah. to say, hey, the market's bottom to call a bottom here. Uh, yeah. Very difficult to do. Uh, I will say, if folks want to learn more about the, the shale industry, a great book to read, really easy read. Uh, Bethany McLean's book, Saudi America, it's about 120 pages, really kind of walks you through and this whole shale industry and where it could be headed. Uh, definitely wanted to check out. I read it about a year ago and really taught me a lot of things. Before we move on to talking a little bit about college football, Jason, I got one last question for you uh, about shale. Obviously, shale, we talked about, has been incredibly disruptive, has you know, tripled U.S. oil production in a 10-year period. As we see shale beginning to mature and the fossil fuel industry adjust to this new production and absorb it, what is your biggest question looking at the energy markets going forward? You know, I, honestly, I think it's really just a question of oil's role, you know, looking out a decade or more down the road. Um, you know, shale has flooded global oil markets. Uh, the U.S. has become the swing producer, but it's just, it's not clear. It's just not clear how much, you know, additional innovation uh, is going to bring prices down, or even if there's really room for that innovation. You know, one of the things that's that's helped these producers is, you know, that that when, you know, you, again, you go back a few years, a lot of the suppliers, so a lot of these, you know, these producers, they use contractors to do a lot of the picks and shovels work, and they were able to, you know, renegotiate a lot of those deals at lower rates because a lot of these service companies were they were just they were looking for any work that they could get. You know, as as that as that supply is tightened, as demand has gone up. You know, it's brought those costs up a little bit, right? So I just I, I don't know that how much again how much room there is for innovation to bring costs down. It hasn't added to the bottom line over the past five years, right? So we know that's the thing. At the same time, I mentioned it earlier, renewables are getting cheaper, they're getting better. Solar and wind technologies are improving, driving efficiencies up, driving their capital costs down. Uh, energy storage is bridging the gap between the kinds of applications that renewables can fill that's going to further seed you know market from from uh from from natural gas particularly so you know i I, again that just factors into to to you know one more good reason to for you know for investors to really not view these independents as really you know necessarily worthy as as long-term investments sure Takeaway, we're not super hopeful about uh, the long-term profitability or just driving a lot of investor uh, you know, returns uh, from these companies going forward. However, it's really disrupted the entire global energy market and has had ripple effects across the world. Um, talking about something where hope springs eternal, Jason, college <laughs> football is beginning. Everyone is undefeated. How excited are you for uh, the game starting this weekend? Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a typical University of Georgia football fan. Uh, you know, coming out of the Mark Richt era, uh, even with Kirby Smart and the success we've had with him as a coach, and that I am terrified that the high expectations that we have are just setting us up for another season of disappointment. Uh, this is you know, Georgia is pretty, pretty consistently considered, you know, a top three team right there with your Crimson Tide and with a very, very good Clemson uh, program. Um, 
So kind of the view for Georgia is that this is, you know, this is, this is good. This is the most talented team that Kirby Smart's had, right? It's, it's this culmination of, of this incredibly high level of recruiting and this really, you know, the athletic ability of the, of the players on this team are, is, is considered to be the best. And you have to consider that, you know, this is after last year, you know, you saw the, uh, one, one of the players that was the best player on the team that was drafted last year was considered the best defensive back in all of college football. The season before that, uh, the best player on the team that was drafted was considered the best linebacker in all of college football. The team has lost three running backs over the past uh, few seasons who are all starting featured running backs in the NFL. So, you know, the team's lost a ton of talent, but it's still this is this is supposed to be the best team that uh, that Kirby Smart has fielded. So but, you know, hope springs eternal. But there's always Alabama in the championship game, right? That's <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. Mac Jones is the backup quarterback this year, if you're taking notes. Uh, but um, we've uh, yeah, similar similar situation similar situation for Bama, right? You had uh, Quinnen Williams, one of the second defensive player off the board this year. Really, difference maker on defense is gone. Josh Jacobs, first running back off the board uh, in the NFL. But very excited uh, for this year. Obviously, coming off the national championship. Loss, very devastating. Uh, but you know, traditionally, Saban's teams have, have bounced back following that. Uh, this is the year. Uh, you know, if you're a Bama fan, you're really hoping the team pulls it through. You've got Tua coming back for probably his last year. You got four receivers that arguably all of them could go in the first round. Uh, so really excited uh, to see how things play out. Excited for the NFL too. I got a famous football draft coming up that same first weekend. Uh, for uh, uh, for that Bama game, so so really looking forward to it. I know Georgia's got Vanderbilt, uh, so uh, very exciting. We'll uh, I'm sure we'll continue the college football talk whenever we have you on, Jason. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I have to. I want to point out too. Notre Dame comes to Athens for I think the first time ever, so that's that's going to be pretty pretty exciting too. So it's, it's going to be a fun season. Yeah, looking forward to it. And uh, you know, maybe come sometime in December, come SEC championship game time. Have another meeting uh, once again, and uh, you know we'll see how it plays out. We may have to do a special edition of industry focus, you know, SEC edition, and and uh, if if our two teams do end up in the in the SEC championship game again, hey, looking forward to it. Uh, thanks, Jason, is coming for coming on the show as always. Absolutely, it's fun. Let's do it again soon. Yep. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!